Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products that customers love. Today, we're talking about disruptions that impact our product work. And there's all kinds of those, right? Supply chain disruptions, the great resignation, what AI is doing and impacts it's making, market competition, other things as well. Continued disruption is certainly expected. The question is, how can we navigate in such an environment like that? And to help us make decisions in this environment, we've asked Alexis Gonzalez-Black to join us. She is an organization design expert and author with experience in organization design, transformation, and team leadership. Is currently leading organization design at August Public and previously at IDEO, Zappos, and other organizations. I love the IDEO connection. I'm a big fan of their design work, so maybe we'll talk Great. about that too. She also authored The New School Rules, Six Vital Practices for Thriving and Responsive Schools, a good book you can find on Amazon. As a reminder, we do make this possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. This is the RPM Experience, which is the fastest way for product VPs and everyone else that's involved in product work to really get on the same page with each other, learning a process that increases performance. It's ideal for newly formed teams or rapidly growing teams. It's unlike any other training, it is an experience that we share together. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see if it can help you and your team. Also, we always create detailed written notes of everything we discuss, including a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately some of the key takeaways that Alexis will share with us. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 445. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to be here, Chad. Thank you for having me. Glad we can talk. And we met about a year ago because I was introduced to you because of a conference that we were both going to. And no doubt in that last year, some more disruptions have come. I suspect the ones that is on a lot of people's minds is AI and things going on with that. But regardless of what it is, there we live in kind of this turbulent environment, especially in product work. I'm curious first for just the background, right? You're an organizational designer. Yeah. What does an organizational designer do? It's a fancy word for basically looking at the factors of an organization like purpose, strategy, structure, process, systems, talent, and incentives, and making sure that those factors are accelerating the organization toward its ultimate outcome, its mission, its vision. And so a lot of times folks will come to org designers with problems of structure. That's the classic org design problem of, I don't think our structure is enabling us to get to where we want. So that's the sticks and the boxes and the circles and who's reporting to who. But it's much more systemic than that. We also look at systems and processes and talent and hiring and all of the internal muscle that helps your organization run and achieve its mission. Excellent. Yeah, with my university professor hat on, we talk about strategy, really mission, vision, strategy being the foundation of organizations and how that drives everything else. Like the structure of the organization has to reflect a strategy. And it's all those elements that you're saying, we need people like you to say, okay, if indeed this is our strategy, then how do we align everything else that makes the organization work? That's right. And there's a trick to it in that what you just mentioned, which is that the cycle of disruption is so fast and the cycle of change around us and the sort of state that we're living in, it consistently pulls our structure or pulls our processes further away from what we are trying to achieve. And so it's not a a practice of a one and done, but that sort of ongoing awareness of how do we sense and adapt 
to change at all levels, whether it's with our team structure, our process, our talent approach, the incentives we're using. And it's that sort of continuous sensing and adapting cycle that we help organizations build. Good. Thank you for that. And just understanding that the nuance there a little bit about organization design. Now, you spend a lot of time with the Fortune 500 customers, your clients, and helping them to navigate disruption and make decisions in these strange, turbulent environments. And you have a framework. It's the for, a framework for decision-making, three simple practices that you use yeah. to thrive in such continuous disruption. And I'm really hoping you'll share them with us and teach us your framework so we can get some benefit from applying this too. Yes. Excellent. Tell us about the framework and wherever you want to start. I think the first is to talk about why decision making. Why do we use that as a way to talk to companies and product teams? And I think the reason is because no matter where we go in any organization, folks have feedback about how decisions are being made at their organization. Typically, people are dissatisfied with the pace of decision making. Either we're not making decisions fast enough, or they're dissatisfied at the level that decision making is taking place. Decision making is happening way too high. Our product teams need to own decisions. We don't need to be running things up the flagpole all the time. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the way decisions are run in organizations. And decision making is a great proxy for many other factors in an organization like trust on your teams or empowerment or psychological safety or speed or efficiency, power, authority. So we often use decision making as a really concrete way to help improve and accelerate teams because it's it brings in so many different factors of how that team works together and how effective they are together. When we think about decision making, there are There's a lot of research out there about what good decision making means. But when we look across all of the research, all of the books from Chip and Dan Heath's Decisive to studies done by Bain and McKinsey about companies that are better at decision making, we see that three common levers emerge. The first is clear decision ownership. The second is a trusted and explicit decision process. And the final one is decision capture. So capturing and communicating decisions in a concrete way. So I'm happy to go into detail about any one of those steps, but that is how we think about improving decision making. If you can take us through all three and kind of how these fit, and if we can talk about examples along the way, or maybe we'll wrap up with an example wherever that ties in. But let's talk about that decision ownership. And I liked it that you said before that decision making is a proxy for trust and empowerment, right? If, yes. if you're not given that power, it's not the maybe the environment that some of us would like to work in, right? Because we want places that have high trust and where you feel like you make a difference. Yes. So let's start there. Let's talk about clear decision ownership. I think the most ubiquitous decision ownership tool that is out there is probably the RACI. I'm sure you've heard Mm -hmm. of a RACI before, Chad. And what we found is that the RACI falls hopelessly short of providing the type of clarity that people want it to provide. I think it's a it's an honorable endeavor to try and think about who is responsible, who's accountable, but what ultimately ends up happening is that teams end up putting many R's and many A's and many C's and many I's and we end up just documenting the dysfunction of our teams rather than really providing clarity about how the decision is made. And so what we like to introduce with the teams that we work with is single decision ownership. And that doesn't mean that person is making an autocratic or individual or command and control type decision, but it means you have one decision owner 
who is responsible for shepherding the decision process, for getting the inputs, and ultimately making the final call. And that level of clarity is what really helps accelerate teams. So we encourage folks to consider who's closest to the work, who has expertise, who's closest to the data, not necessarily who is most senior, but who's actually in the flow of work and has the best expertise as as one of the considerations to think about when we select single decision ownership. Yep, good. I like that. So this flashed into my brain, not sure quite why, but in a nonprofit setting that I'm responsible for helping to lead an aspect of that, it came up that there was some disagreement about a decision that I had made, right? And so I got the feedback that was great and, and acknowledged that. And it was actually nice knowing that I owned that decision to simply say, yeah, I appreciate that. Someone had to make the decision. If you're in that role to make the decision, you might make it differently. I made it this time. And it was easy, right? And everyone felt like, oh, we can just move forward. It was done. I love that's music to my ears, Chad. I think a lot of folks default to consensus as the model for decision making because they're afraid of that scenario that you just described, which is what happens if it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to, or what happens if something unforeseen takes place and then I'm going to be responsible or out on the line or I'm going to be the person they blame. And the reality is that consensus is overused, it's misused, and we tend to swirl around the drain of consensus seeking when what is preferable is for one person, such as yourself, to make a decision using the information they have at the time and to have an environment where it's okay to say, oh, maybe that's not what I would have done, but I trust you, or maybe it didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to, but let's just learn and pivot moving forward and take that into consideration moving forward, rather than getting caught up in the blame game and the fear and the continuous consensus seeking behaviors that so many organizations do. A lot of time we just need a decision to move forward, right? And make the best out of where we find ourselves. Exactly. Okay. So first practice, first lever here, clear decision ownership the racy chart diagram, that matrix, like you said, responsibility, ownership, what is it, a consultant, inform or something, not a great tool. It is When you're creating this clear decision making, is there a tool that you do like to use for this? I don't want to completely discredit RACI. Oftentimes at the launch of a project, it may be a good tool to get your head wrapped around generally who's responsible, who's accountable. But we have to remember that on any given project, there might be tens or hundreds of decisions, and it's not going to be the same R or the same the same A. Right. And so we need to get into the habit of, by decision by decision, selecting who the best decision maker is or decision owner is for that decision. Yeah. And the framework that we use is often just a proposal where somebody on the team says, you know what? I think Chad is closest to this information. He's been working on this project and driving this forward. I propose that Chad is the decision owner. And you have a quick moment to see, are there any objections? Is there anybody else who objects to Chad owning the decision? And as long as we agree that Chad is going to make sure that us as his stakeholders are heard and considered, we consent to Chad being the decision owner. So we often just use sort of an informal proposal mechanism to put forward who a decision owner should be, and then a really rigorous stakeholder map where you as the decision owner is going to name, okay, who are my key stakeholders? Who are the folks who I need to keep in the loop? Who are the people who are going to be impacted by this decision that I won't necessarily invite into the decision-making moment, but I want to make sure to get their input, or I want to make sure to surface their data in advance. So again, it's not the sort of chat is the decision maker and we all switch off and say, that's your problem, you deal with it. 
But Chad is the decision maker then has to make a great stakeholder map, engage us appropriately, get our data and make sure that the decision is considering the most relevant data and moving forward. Very good. So clear decision ownership, that proposal approach to select the decision maker who's best suited, and then making sure we've done our stakeholder work, who's going to be impacted by the decision. Okay, first practice. What's our second practice? Second practice is using an explicit decision process. So the other place where RACI really falls short, it doesn't give you any clarity as to how to approach the actual decision itself. We often end up using a RACI and then just defaulting to consensus anyway, where one person goes around and tries to get the consensus of everybody. And then we run into that sort of late stage moment when a senior person decides that they're no longer supporting this decision. They pull back their support. We have the veto. And now we're back to square one. So it doesn't give us a lot of clarity around how to actually lead a decision in the decision-making moment. So what we propose is something like an advice process or what we call a disagree and commit process, where you actually detail the steps of a decision-making process. I'll give you an example. Oftentimes we work with organizations to implement a disagree and commit process. Disagree and commit is a very famous saying that is out there. It's from an Amazon Jeff Bezos stakeholder shareholder letter from yesteryear. And he talked about how it's important to disagree and commit. What does that mean? So we break that down into concrete steps. So first, we begin with a proposal. The second step is the stakeholders get an opportunity to ask clarifying questions, which is really important. Because as stakeholders, often we jump right into reactions, we jump right into piling on, we jump right into hole poking. Haven't you thought about this? What do you think about that? And we truly need to understand and clarify before we get into our opinions. After we've clarified, we'll have a round of advice or reactions where each person, one at a time without interruption, gets to say their advice. And then we will end the decision-making moment with what we call an objection round, which is not do you like this? It's not, do you agree? It's not, do you feel excited about this? It's simply, do you have any data that this is unsafe to try? And the answer is either, no, I don't have any data that this is unsafe to try, or yes, I do have data. And so we will have an explicit moment to put that dissent on the table validate whether or not it is valid data or not valid data or valid objection or not, kind of sort through that and then leave that one hour meeting having made a decision. Hmm. So that's what I mean when I say clarity of process, not just get in a room, hash it out, debate, and then leave going, did we make a decision or what decision did we make? But really have a stepped through process that's clear that people can adhere to and know how to show up in so that we leave with closure. We'll be back with our guest in a moment. As you are a listener to this podcast, I want you to know how you can get even greater value from it, which is by becoming a member of the Product Mastery Now community. After being closed to new members for the last six months, it's now open. The community lets you meet the weekly guests yourself and ask your questions. If you missed these live sessions, you can view the video recording months before the audio-only version is available on podcast players, like what you're listening to now. You can also use Super Search to search the content of all past episodes, both in audio and video when available. The community is also the place to interact with other product professionals and get tips and advice. And that's just part of what the community offers. In my opinion, working in product is the best job you can have. Now, of course, I'm biased, but that's been true for me and true for many others I've talked to. But still, many of us have few opportunities to network and learn from other product professionals. 
let's change that. Since you already find this podcast valuable, you need to be in the community also, and you can be for as little as $10 a month. You'll be helping yourself and also helping this podcast. Please join now by going to productmasterynow.com slash community. Thanks for checking it out. One of my friends introduced me to a practice last year I was completely unfamiliar with, and I unfortunately don't remember the name. Maybe you've come across it. It's a Puritan practice. So it's like the Puritan Truth Council or something like that, where basically you get your friends together in the room, and one person says, I'm struggling with this. Yes. Here's what I need help with. Yes. Everyone can ask clarifying questions, Mm -hmm. and then you go around the room, round robin, to give some feedback or response. It sounds like you've come across this sort of thing. Absolutely. So there's a Quaker decision-making Quaker, process. Quaker, that's, okay. I got mixed up there. Quaker, okay. <laughs> yes, there's a Quaker decision-making process that we were inspired by when we designed these decision-making processes. We've looked at Quaker decision-making. We've looked at nonprofit and community organizing decision-making practices around organizations like ACT UP and all of these. And we've kind of studied the way that different groups have made decisions. And we have then created these concrete decision-making practices using the experiences that we've learned about. So if you, one last thing I'll share with you is if you think about decision-making as a spectrum, where on one side of the spectrum, you have individual autocratic decision-making. I say what goes and everybody follows me. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have consensus, which is we all agree. What we like to introduce is that there are several methods that can exist in between that spectrum. Decision-making methods like Quaker decision-making, democratic decision-making, fist to five, advice, disagree and commit, consent. And so often our brains, they just swing back and forth between it's either my way or everybody is going to do it together in consensus. And we like to introduce the fact that there are really well-researched and really well-proven methods of decision-making that help balance inclusion with speed. And we can get smarter and more deliberate about that. So use what has worked. In those processes, I'm sure one thing that comes out, I just want to hit upon it and get your insights from your experience. I often find in a decision-making context that the first presenting problem that we need a decision about is not actually the real problem we need a decision about. Mm. If we back up and take some time to reframe it, and one, for instance, for innovators from an innovation story, I heard the example of having, having teams work on furniture that could be reused for another purpose versus designing things that you can sit on and put things on that can be reused for a different purpose. And just that simple reframing dramatically changes the outcome of where we go. Yes. I always like backing up a little bit and thinking about, are we actually, have we framed this problem properly? Yes. That would certainly come out in the clarifying questions, but what's your experience with that? I always, to what you just described, (laughs) reminded me, this is a side note, reminded me of a trip I took to Ikea recently. I don't know if Mm -hmm. Ikea was the group you were working with, but they had a whole process around, this is a chair, but then you can cut off the back of the chair and then it's a table and then you can Mm -hmm. repaint it and then it's a hutch and all this stuff. So I thought that was very clever. But what you mentioned reminds me of what I often call a do not pass go, do not collect $200 moment in decision making, Mm -hmm. which is define the decision. And this is actually going to be upstream from any of the stuff that we've talked about today. This is before you even name an owner, before you get into the decision-making process, you're going to want to define the decision. And it's so important for 
a couple reasons. Chad, you named one, which is that oftentimes we enter into the discussion and the decision we're trying to make is either a symptom of a bigger decision or we haven't quite thought back into what is the thing that we actually need to be answering here. So that's one. And the other one is we have a tendency to bundle decisions together and to Mm. try and make decisions all at the same time. So we will try to make a decision around which feature to test on the website, as well as who is going to own this feature, who's going to be working on it, how many resources can we put behind it, how much of our customer base can we impact in this test. So we tend to bundle these decisions together and we get stuck. So we want to do some like teasing apart and unbundling some looking at the bigger picture and really defining the parameters of the decision before we even get into the process. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. If I could add a fourth thing, it would be a fourth practice at the beginning of that framework, which is define the decision. Fantastic. Now we have four legs of our stool here instead of just three. So getting more stable all the time. I always think people remember things better in threes, but I'm into the fourth leg of the stool. I'm glad I asked you about that. I really like and recognizing that we often deal with a bundle of things. I'm guilty of this. I have spent a lot of my life in innovation, so I've learned to not rush into things. But I'm wired as an engineer, and that was that's my original education. And you say anything that sounds like a problem, something that we have to decide on, I'm all in. Let's get moving. Yes. And knowing that even if we just say, okay, 15 minutes. Okay, everyone, 15 minutes. Let's back up. Let's just talk about the thing we're trying to decide about. Is this the right thing? How else should we be thinking about this? It's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And then what are we what do we need to decide on now versus what can we decide on later? So what do we need to how do we need to triage and actually approach these decisions so that we're making them one at a time and moving forward rather than getting stuck in our and grinding gears because we haven't been able to answer all the questions up front, which is very difficult to do. Okay. So we got little framing. We got clear decision ownership, explicit decision process. There's good ones to use. You walked us through one, make use of it. And this last one I particularly like as well, you called this decision capture. Yes. And this is the one that probably sounds the most rudimentary or the most simple, but is actually incredibly difficult. And most teams don't do this. And it's so surprising. So we actually use the mantra, if it's not written down, it isn't decided. If it's not written down, it isn't decided because you would be surprised how many people can leave the same meeting, having had the same discussion and hold very different ideas of the decision that was made. So we like to bring it back to basics, which is in a shared document, in a shared space, in a shared log, write down the decision that was made. Bonus points if you can include context around that decision, other alternative versions that you considered but didn't go with, trade-offs that you were willing to make in that decision. Who were the stakeholders? So a lot of the teams that we work with will have a really simple template, whether it's in a confluence or a notion or housed somewhere internally, where they have a simple template. It's got five prompts and it's what is the decision that was made, who was there, what considerations, what trade-offs, and then when will we revisit this decision? So communicating out not just the decision itself, but also context behind the decision, which helps folks who were not in the room. It helps them execute that decision with greater fidelity because they understand the why behind it. It helps us all get on the same page. So cannot emphasize enough the importance of logging your decisions and making them explicit. I really like that. And the reason why when you went through the initial framework and I decision capturing stuck out to me was any of us that have been on fast-paced projects with a team, 
recognize if this project has gone on for a few months. We go, now, why did we make that decision two months ago? I know we made the decision, but I don't remember why we came up Mm -hmm. with this decision because none of us are happy with it now. Yes. If we had the context, if we could remember, that would be really helpful to us. And so I want to get your template right. I don't know if I capture all this right. You know, what the actual decision itself was, the presenting decision, who was there, what we decided, the actual decision outcome, right? The trade-offs that were involved. And then is there a time frame that we need to maybe revisit this in the future? That's exactly right. Yep. I would just add to that trade-offs piece, any other important context around this decision, why we were making it, not just the trade-offs, but were there other versions of the decision that we considered and didn't do? The more context you can provide for folks, I find a lot of times people who are not in decision-making rooms are clamoring for transparency around decisions. They want to know. And even if they know that they shouldn't be at the table and part of the stakeholder group, they want greater access to the discussion that happened and why that decision was made. And they really want to understand it. So by capturing a few of those critical points, you don't just improve your ability to learn, like you mentioned, looking backwards at why did we do that? What were we testing? Okay. But you also improve your team's ability to execute on that decision and and engage in constructive dialogue around that decision. I think one reason that doesn't happen, right, as a, if I'm the project manager for the team, I just don't like having to deal with that. And I'm curious if you have an experience with this. There, there's so many recent tools, especially in the remote setting, that, that capture our discussion for us and capture yeah. action items for us, these AI-driven tools that help us out with some things. Have you seen these being used yet for this sort of thing? Totally. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned AI at the beginning. And here's another place where there are many new AI technologies like Otter or Fireflies that can actually record a conversation, summarize that conversation into its main themes and insights and read out that summary at a high level, which is nice because transparency isn't just about data dump. It's not just about dumping a one hour conversation transcript on somebody, but being able to actually look into what were the decision making points, highlights, what were the themes of what came out of it can be a really helpful tool to get folks on board with a decision that was made. There are all kinds of other tools that are emerging too around asynchronous decision making as we have become an increasingly distributed workforce where we're not all in the same room. How do we make asynchronous decisions? If we're in different time zones and we don't have time to all meet together. There are tools like Murmur, tools like Hoop, where you can input a proposal and it'll actually move the proposal through a bunch of stage gates around like, it's now open for clarifying questions and everybody in the team can write their questions. It's now open for objections. You can object if you want to. And it all is documented in a space that you can refer back to and use it as a decision-making log. So there are all kinds of tools, including AI tools that can help teams in this area. I like the clarity and the simplicity of our framework. You positioned this in the beginning of three simple practices, and we snuck in a fourth one there, right? The framing of the problem, the decision, clear decision ownership, the explicit process we're going to use, and then capturing what was actually done at the end with some context. I don't know if you have an example that that you might want to just talk about of seeing this applied where it made some difference in an organization. Yeah, I have thousands of examples where this has worked, but I think 
One that comes to mind is I was working with the CEO of a large software company. And this is somebody who is extremely confident in their decision making, not somebody who shies away from bold decisions. And we used an explicit process with the CEO staff. So the CEO was making a proposal. We had time for clarifying questions and then almost painstakingly went around person by person for the members of his C-staff to share their advice and reaction to it. And it's such a subtle but profound shift from Mm. what we're used to, which is loudest voices in the room dominate, everybody piling on top of each other, people disagreeing or listening only enough so that they can respond with their own opinion. And so it really shifted the energy in the room to that of, you know, quiet contemplation where he was having to listen intently to what each person said in turn without being able to react or respond. And at the end of that meeting, the CEO said, not only did I make a different decision, so my proposal changed after hearing the advice, but I heard from members of my CEO staff that I would never typically hear from. And we considered that a huge win for that team, not just in in the inclusion of voices, and of course, inclusion and engagement matters, but just the quality of data that he was able to use to improve his decision by simply using an explicit process to be able to move forward on that. And so his his position changed, he was able to get better data, and they were to make that decision faster than they normally would have been able to make that decision. So there are many stories like that I have, and it's all about practice, and it can be uncomfortable for those of us that don't find it difficult to weigh in and find it easy. It can be difficult to be held by a structure, but the outcomes that I've seen are immensely better than they would have been. Yeah, I like that approach. Hearing from people that I never would have heard from normally is important as well. There's those of us like me that are pretty high introverts that are really engaged at the in that meeting and thinking all the time and may not necessarily look like it. And if I'm not purposely drawn into the sharing my thoughts, I may choose not to. And introverts like to do that sort of thing, right? And so I like, process like processes like this where that's the expectation. And also the CEO, in some sense, speaking last, much, much more powerful. As listeners know, we like innovation quotes around here. I asked you to bring one for us and for you to explain what that means to us as well. So can you share what you have for us? Sure. Yeah. I actually, I sent it to you. It's a long one. So I'm just going to read it off of Mm -hmm. my computer if you don't mind. But my favorite quote is, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms or books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I realize it's a mouthful, it's a long one, but it really strikes me that as innovators, as folks who are focused engineers, people who are focused on solutions and what is the answer to the problem, right. that <laughs> it's really easy to just drive and put on those blinders and really drive it. What is the answer? I've got to get it right. And the reality is we operate in an increasingly volatile, complex, uncertain, and ambiguous world that the answers are not out there. There's no roadmap. And we have to learn our way into the future, which means bumping into things, failing at things, trying, and it not working out quite as we wanted to. And I think this quote just reminds me to enjoy the questions themselves, that uncomfortable 
feeling that I get when I'm like, I'm not getting this right. I am not, I know I'm not getting this right. I am uncomfortable. It is not working. I am struggling. But to remind myself that this is the learning and I should enjoy the learning because only through understanding and living in this moment will I ever be able to happen into some future where I actually know the answer. So it just reminds me to be present in that moment. I like that. And I'm unfamiliar with the quote, which I also really enjoy. I get new quotes. <laughs> There's power in questions and thinking just about the questions and coming up with good questions helps us enormously. Appreciate you sharing that with us. How can people find out about the work you're doing, more about the book you have, other resources you have available? Yeah, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn, Alexis Gonzalez Black. You can also reach out to me via email, agb at og.co. I'm a partner at August. I lead our organization design practice, and I would love to talk to anybody who's interested in either just for their own personal edification or interested in partnering around an or a nice org design problem that you may be experiencing. Please do reach out. I would love to speak with folks, and thank you for having me so much, Chad. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it, Alexis. We'll make sure the links are in the show notes so people can find you easier. And thanks for all the great information on decision-making and making a nice, simple, clear framework for us to apply. Absolutely. And listeners, as a reminder, we do prepare those resources for you. That one-page action guide to help you put into action this framework. We'll share that with you. And also detailed notes of everything we just discussed. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 445. Alexis and I and members in our private community are going to continue this chat. And if you've ever been listening to an episode and you said, man, I really wish I could have asked this question, or you were yelling at me going, why did it you ask this question, Chad? This is your opportunity. So check out the community if you want to be part of that. Simply go to productmasterynow.com slash community to find out more about that. And as always, everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.